you know, some people use it for coffee creamer, not me so much, but <laughs> um, you can cut that out too. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's I that's hard to show with that. Um, <laughs> continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Hi. <laughs> I am Justin Boyd. Joined t- I'm Justin Burke, joined tonight by our outstanding guest, Dr. Joan Meat, to discuss infant nutrition. We're also here with our wonderful producer, Edward, not Ed Cordy. Hey there. Welcome, Ed. We love having you on the show. We also have Chris the Chew Man Chew. Speaking of which, hey, Chris, what do we do here on the show, man? Well, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast, where we interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer leading questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. And tonight we have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Joan Meek. She's a board-certified pediatrician, a registered dietitian, and an international board-certified lactation consultant from Orlando. She has served as the chair of the American Academy of Pediatrics section on breastfeeding, chair of the United States Breastfeeding Committee, and president of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Dr. Meek is the editor-in-chief of AAP's New Mother's Guide to Breastfeeding. She is a general academic pediatrician who enjoys teaching patients, medical students, and residents about healthy ways to feed infants and children. She teaches us about vitamin D initiation, the benefits of breastfeeding, and about all the alternative diets and baby-fed weaning. She was great. Let's, uh, without further ado, let's uh, let's get to it. Uh, I cannot wait to hear what she says. I don't know. I'm still formulating my thoughts. Zing. We're gonna gonna work on this, guys. So (laughs) that'll workshop it. Well, Let's get started. So today, Dr. Joan Meat, we are so excited to have you for an episode on infant nutrition, which comes up all the time in clinic, comes up all the time in the hospital. It's going to be a great topic. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm pleased uh, to be here. Amazing. We, we're a very informal show. We're kind of an informal gang. And so if it's okay with you, is it fine if we call you by your first name, Joan? Oh, yes, that's perfectly fine. Amazing. Thank you so much. So we would love to get to know you a little bit better, and the audience would love to get to know you a little bit better. Would you mind giving us a one-liner just to kind of describe yourself, maybe outside of medicine or, or who you are? So I, this is more medicine-focused, I think, but I am a general pediatrician. I have particular expertise in breastfeeding medicine. I'm also a medical educator. I'm a mom of three, a nana or grandmother to four, all of whom have been breastfed. And I do have a real interest in teaching families about the importance of breastfeeding, healthy lifestyles, and preventive medicine. Excellent. Fantastic. My mom told me that I was not breastfed, and I blame her for my asthma all the time. And so you can (laughs) support that. Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) Chris, you want to do a question? Yeah. So my favorite question to ask is, what is your favorite failure and what did you learn from it? So, you know, I, I, I've, I've heard from a lot of my mentors about their, you know, specific events, which they carried throughout the rest of their career with them. I did have an episode as a pediatric resident in which I followed it up on a study, but I failed to communicate the results of that x-ray finding in a timely fashion to my attending, I sort of, I guess, still had the naive assumption that the attendings were following up closely on everything. So there was a a delay and we got the information, but there was a delay in terms of passing that information along. It probably didn't change the ultimate outcome, which was not a great outcome in this particular situation, but it really reinforced to me that issue that we always have to take ownership of our patients. We always have to assume that we are the ones responsible for making sure we get the information, we act on the information, we pass that information forward. So, you know, I I worry as an educator because of the new 
kind of rules in terms of training that there's always the senior person, there's the senior resident or the faculty right at the shoulder, and that we've sort of delayed that transition of taking full ownership a bit. So I think it's even uh, a little more stressful for our current trainees to take over that role. But but that particular incident really stressed to me that I was responsible, I was in charge, and I needed to take responsibility if there was an error. Oh, excellent. Thank you so much. That's that a great was lesson. a great one. Yeah. Dr. Meek, one question that we like to ask also is, what is a book that either every physician in training or anybody involved in healthcare should read? And the book doesn't even have to be about medicine. So I, I personally love all of Atul Gawande's writings and books and how he integrates QI technology in terms of improving patient care and decreasing risk of errors. But my favorite book is actually Dr. Paul Galanithes. I may be mispronouncing that, but When Breath Becomes Air. I just found that incredibly inspirational. If you haven't read the book, it's about a, a, a neurosurgery resident who actually develops lung cancer himself and really goes through that journey. And it's that the, the uh, emphasis on the doctor as patient and how he had to make that transition and how we went back and forth between those roles. And, you know, ultimately he died at the end of the book and his wife actually finished it. But I just, I just found it extremely powerful in terms of looking at, at the other side of medicine. And I think for trainees in particular, if they haven't had any kind of a serious healthcare event themselves or in their immediate family, they may not have, have seen that role kind of from the patient side. So I, I just found that extremely powerful and I've recommended that to, to many colleagues. Yeah. Great choice. It's a good pick. Heartbreaking. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's do, let's do one more question. I love collecting advice throughout all of my training and now teaching. Can you give, what's the best advice you've ever received as a teacher or as a learner or as a physician? So, you know, I think as a learner, what I heard from my faculty members was make sure you take advantage of every clinical opportunity you have. And they emphasize that as a trainee, you have a little additional license to be involved in situations that you wouldn't otherwise. So, you know, going to the OR, watching a procedure, going in a patient's room, of course, introducing yourselves and with the patient's permission saying, you know, my, my colleague asked me to come in and, you know, evaluate thus and such or look at your rash or, you know, listen to your lungs or whatever. Would that be okay? And, and you can kind of do that when you're in the training phase. And most of the times patients are extremely receptive to that. But, you know, as a faculty member or as an attending, I can't just go marching into, into rooms of other attendings patients. So you, you kind of become a little more sheltered in terms of, of what you can do in the experiences. I don't have necessarily the luxury of time to go to the OR if my patient is going to the OR. But as a trainee, you know, you can really take advantage of, of all those opportunities. So I think just, you know, making the most of the clinical opportunities and instead of, oh, here's another patient, it's like, wow, here's another opportunity to learn. Sometimes hard to see it from that perspective when you're tired and it's the end of your, you know, your shift. But I think retrospectively, you appreciate that more than you do in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much. That was very good. You know, one thing, guys, we haven't done in a long time is what's called, we do something, uh, Joan, called Pitch of the Week on occasion, where we try to share a, a piece of media or consumption or just anything cool um, that we want to share with the audience. And Edward, do you have any anything that, any Pitch of the Week, anything that you think would be cool to share? Yes, I have a pick of the week, one I've been waiting for for a long time. It came to Netflix, a 90-minute documentary called Bending the Arc. And so this is about Paul Farmer, Jim Kim, and Ophelia Dahl, and how they started Partners in Health, and how they made social justice the main factor of their medical pursuits and what they've done across the world and in the United States. So they were a major inspiration to me to go to medical school, and I just, I just think everyone should check it out because it's it's great to watch. Yeah, I remember reading Mountains Beyond Mountains about them when I was in college and felt similarly inspired. I have not seen the documentary, but I'm very excited. Chris, do you have any pick? Any pick well, of the week? Mine isn't quite so heavy, but I have. I'm a fa I'm a father of four boys, and my two oldest uh, are into a, a cartoon called Avatar: The Last Airbender, and so. I've been watching along with them because it's the first time I've been watching it. So we've been slowly plucking away at episodes for several months now, but it's quite good. 
Nice. <laughs> my pick. I have been watching The West Wing a lot recently, which is not my pick of the week, but the drink that I learned about, non-alcoholic drink, that is featured in one of the episodes is called an egg cream, which is milk, chocolate syrup, and club soda, which I have started trying, and it's amazing. And everyone should make themselves an egg cream, milk, chocolate syrup, and club soda. It's delicious. And I just keep learning more and more from the West Wing. It, it's really influencing my wife, in, influencing my life every day. This episode is brought to you by Egg Cream. <laughs> All right, we should get into it. Let's right? get into it. Let's do it. <laughs> Edward, do you mind introducing our first case from Cashlot Children's Hospital? Sure. So Cal O'Ree is a five-day-old boy at Cashlot Children's Clinic for his first visit, and he was born at full term via C-section due to a nuchal cord. His APGAR scores were 8 and 9, and his birth weight was 7 pounds, 12 ounces, or 3.51 kilograms. His mother has been breastfeeding him six times daily as she continues a part-time job remotely. She's noticed that his skin is getting a little bit yellow, and she's worried she did something wrong. On physical exam, Cal now weighs 7 pounds, or 3.17 kilograms, which is a loss of 10% of his body weight. He's calmly sleeping in his mother's arms and appears significantly jaundiced. Great. So I think this is a great introduction of general newborn uh, feedings and something that comes up a lot on our first newborn visit. And so, Joan, can you kind of walk us through what are the, some of the things that you're thinking about in the first few days of life? What are things that we can talk about on the first visit regarding nutrition? And for Cal, who's lost about 10% of the body weight and is maybe looking a little bit yellow, what are things that are coming to mind? So as someone who's done a lot of newborn care, both inpatient and outpatient, and also with breastfeeding medicine interest, I had a lot of thoughts on this one that I'm happy to share. Excellent. So I, I, I always hope to start this conversation prenatally if there's an opportunity, and certainly in the hospital, if I'm taking care of the patient in the hospital. If not, hopefully your hospitalist colleagues are uh, well-educated about breastfeeding and breastfeeding support, and you have other support in the hospital. But once they come for follow-up in the outpatient setting, I, first of all, emphasize that that first uh, visit is really important. So the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics and Bright Futures recommends the first hospital visit within about two to three days of hospital discharge, sometimes earlier, and then by the fifth day of life. So it's really important to see these, these babies early. And I think particularly with the current pandemic we're experiencing, we have heard some stories about having difficulty get in for, getting in for that first visit. So it's really important that we continue to provide those, those first visits because they're really critical in terms of assessing any issues with, you know, overall newborn health and, and well-being as well as feeding problems. But during that visit, I always start out by asking the mother how she's doing. How are things going for her? She's probably sleep deprived. If she's breastfeeding, she's spending a lot of her time doing breastfeeding. So just asking her how she's adapted to, if it's first baby, this, you know, new role as a mother, and then just taking care of her child at home now that they've gone home from the hospital. So kind of starting with that, I think is important. I'm not too terribly concerned about the weight at this particular visit, nor about some mild degree of jaundice. That's not, you know, that unexpected, although we would like to have some objective measurement of the jaundice. But we know that most babies are going to lose somewhere around 8 to 10% of their initial birth weight. They can lose a little more than that, particularly if the mother received a lot of IV fluids during the intrapartum period of time, which sometimes with the epidurals, they actually have gotten a lot. I would also want to sort of emphasize that to the mom that it's normal to lose weight. We expect babies to lose weight initially. That's physiologically normal. So we're not too concerned about that, you know, in and of itself. But by day five, we do expect that most term otherwise healthy babies will have already reached their maximum weight loss and hopefully have begun to gain some weight. Once they start gaining, we generally expect they're going to gain somewhere around 20 to 30 grams per day. So again, if I had known that the discharge weight, that might have helped me a little bit. There are a couple risk factors just from the history that we were given here, though, that, that would concern me a little bit. One of those was the cesarean delivery. We know in many cases, those 
babies who um, are born via cesarean are less likely to have immediate skin-to-skin after delivery, which is important in terms of the early initiation of breastfeeding and just aiding that transition. And if the mother had any complications, sometimes the mother and baby get physically separated. So the first feeding can be delayed significantly beyond that first hour of life, which is where we'd like to see the first attempt at breastfeeding take place. There's another sort of historical piece here in that the mom has already started working again, even though she's working remotely. And, and doing that on a part-time basis, there's a lot of sort of time and energy for her that may be going into that. We really expect in the immediate postpartum period that the, the infant, the newborn, is going to feed about every two to three hours or approximately eight to 12 times per 24 hours, preferably closer to 10 to 12 times per 24 hours to get a good milk supply established. The other thing I would want to know in assessing this situation is where mother is in her milk production phase. So we know that initially babies feed colostrum. That's normal over the first few days, small frequent feedings of colostrum. But generally, by this phase, I would expect that the mother has started to um, produce a larger volume of milk, transitional milk, what sometimes in the, the lay terminology is milk coming in, or an increase in milk production, which is the term I prefer. So just asking mom about whether she's experienced that fullness, whether she's noticed when the baby latches on one side, she has milk either dripping or spraying from the other breast whether she notices after the baby feeds that there's some softening of the breasts. All of those would be good signs in terms of the the um, fact that we're maybe turning the corner and the baby is beginning to improve in terms of milk intake and all. And and can I ask, so it, it sounds like there are some risk factors that would make worrisome and that we're, we're not sure if she's feeding, if the baby's feeding adequately, if she's recovering right. completely. If she were to tell us, you know, my milk does feel like it's coming in, turns out, you know, she is waiting to feed every two to three hours. Are we, it sounds like we're pretty reassured. What would be the red flags that would make you think maybe we should supplement or maybe we should be intervening? Is it, is it a 15% weight loss? Is it persistently down after five days? What are things that can kind of make that pathway decision for us? So I think continuing to lose at this point would be, would be worrisome. The other thing that we didn't get to is the output. So actually knowing this uh, baby stooling and voiding would be really important in terms of assessing this overall situation. And if the mother's milk supply is increased and the baby is actually transferring adequate milk at each feeding, we would expect that the baby has transitioned from those meconium dark tarry stools to a more transitional green loose stool and is kind of getting that yellow seedy frequent stooling. That's a good indication of calories in. So that's really helpful. Overall hydration status can be assessed with the number of voids that the baby has. Generally by this phase, we'd expect somewhere in the range of six to eight voids per day and at least four plus stools, sometimes with every single breastfeeding. So again, that tells me more about the mom's milk production and how much the baby is actually transferring or, or ingesting or feeding. So, so all those would be reassuring things. In that case, I probably would still want to see this baby again within 24 to 48 hours, just to make sure that, you know, we're continuing along a good path there, that the jaundice is declining instead of getting worse, and that the baby's continuing to feed well. And that could be a, you know, a pretty quick, you know, weight check visit, make sure all is well, make sure mom doesn't have any other questions, and then you could, you know, transition to a more normal um, schedule. You mentioned 15% weight loss, though. That that does become a bit more concerning, and particularly if you're not getting those reassuring signs in terms of, you know, f- adequate feeding, adequate transfer of milk, adequate stooling pattern. If there really is an issue with either the mom's production of milk or the baby's transfer of milk, that baby may need supplementation of some sort just to make sure that we don't get into a real danger zone there. And, and that can be done either by having mom express milk if she has adequate milk and baby's just not getting enough so that she can feed some additional express milk. 
either via feeding tube, syringe, or or via a bottle if need be. In for a short term, if mom doesn't have enough milk to express, and we'll say there's no donor milk available that's been you know adequately pasteurized and is safe to feed, then formula would be you know the the next best choice in terms of providing a supplement. Again, it can be short term until we sort of resolve what the basic issues are, kind of get them over the hump and make sure that we get the baby on a nice weight gain trajectory. So the the, the greater weight loss than 10%, I do think we need to look at that much more carefully. And I would probably err on the side of seeing that baby back, assuming that the baby looks well, is active, alert, you know, is, is feeding okay. If, if we manage that as an outpatient, I would probably want to see that one back within, that baby back within 24 hours. Can you describe sort of a, a regimen in which you would choose in terms of supplementing just in, in general? How would you, how would you do it if, if they don't, if you're using a formula as a supplement? So generally I would want the mother to still breastfeed first to maximize the the breast stimulation, the nipple stimulation, to try to boost the the milk production as much as possible. I mentioned you can use a a feeding tube essentially at the breast. There are commercial devices, or you can kind of make your own with a syringe and a feeding tube, and you put the supplement in the syringe. But as the baby latches on and is providing that nipple stimulation to boost the milk supply, the baby gets the supplement. Again, whether that would be mother's you know, expressed milk, if she has some available or the formula, it can be given that way. If that's too cumbersome to to do that setup, moms can use a a syringe to feed that if they want to avoid giving artificial nipples to the baby or that, or they can use a bottle. We are less concerned, I would say nowadays about the artificial nipples with the current literature than what we used to be, particularly if it's on a short-term basis. But there, there are babies that if they're feeding well on the breast and then they get an artificial feeding from a bottle, whether that's breast milk or formula, just the method that they that they suck on the bottle versus suckling at the breast is really different. And some babies don't transition back and forth with those different feeding mechanisms particularly well. For others, it's not it's not an issue. So do I do like to caution families if they, you know, choose to use bottles early on before breastfeeding is well established that there's, you know, a potential risk there. Although the evidence seems to imply that it's probably not a huge um, issue for most babies. I'm Dr. Sarah Vincent, a child and adolescent psychiatrist. Do you want to learn more about ADHD? Learn that all that fidgets, it's not ADHD. How Vanderbilt scales tell you about ADHD symptoms, but not if someone has an ADHD diagnosis. How racism and sexism can influence the diagnosis, evaluation, and treatment of diagnoses like ADHD and oppositional defiant disorder, and how those impacts actually can have lifelong effects. To learn more, join me for the Cribsiders episode on ADHD. So Dr. Meek, when you have a family in front of you and you're talking about kind of going down the path of breastfeeding versus potentially adding a little bit extra, what are some of the benefits that you highlight about breastfeeding? with that family? Oh, let me count the ways that it's beneficial. First of all, I I think we need to think of breast milk or human milk as the biologic norm against which other feedings are are compared. But in terms of looking at at the evidence that supports breastfeeding benefits or whether you want to say risks of infant formula or artificial feedings. There, there are a number of clear clear ways in which breastfeeding is better for both mom and for the child. For the baby or, or young child, the, the strongest evidence is in lower rates of lower respiratory tract infections, severe cases of diarrhea, particularly those which would require hospitalization or IV fluids, et cetera, otitis media, and obesity. And those benefits are strongest with early exclusive breastfeeding and longer durations of overall breastfeeding, particularly in terms of the obesity benefits. 
there are lots of benefits for the mom as well. And, and there, are some th- there are some studies that have shown decreased risk of allergy and ATP and, and all. There are, there's some conflicting data. So, you know, maybe it's not all, all bad. So maybe there. that's not why I've asked. Yeah, maybe that's yeah. not why I've asthma. Got you. Correct, correct. <laughs> but in terms of the, the mom's health, it, it really is important for moms. And I think so, as pediatricians, particularly, we tend to focus on the um, benefits to the child. But maybe as, as med peds docs, you guys really look at the, the mother side of, of health as well. And certainly our OB colleagues do. But in terms of the maternal benefits, for, for, for mom in terms of her health outcomes, duration of breastfeeding for at least 12 months or longer, and that can be cumulative. Um, so with multiple children, it doesn't mean that it's all, you know, 12 months with one child, although that's great if it's 12 months or longer with one. But there's decreased risk of maternal diabetes, hypertension, breast cancer, and ovarian cancer. There are, you know, some studies that show other important benefits in terms of just de- decreased overall risk of heart disease. There's, you know, some studies looking at rheumatoid arthritis, other immune mediums diseases. So it goes well beyond, the, the, the mother's role goes well beyond just a passive producer of nutrition for the child. And it really, the act of breastfeeding and the physiologic response for the mother definitely confers some, some lifetime benefits. And we need to make sure that we educate the moms about that. This is great. This is really helpful. I think one thing in talking about breastfeeding versus formula feeding. I will say a lot of times it does seem like the decisions made when they come to me. And I, I try to, you know, I try to be very supportive. If, if a family is, is setting formula feeding, I try not to, to stigmatize the role of formula feeding. A lot of the moms are going through a lot of stressors and I hate to add on one more thing. One of the uh, questions that oh, I, can I, yeah. can I comment please, on that? Of course, please. That'd be on? wonderful. Of course. Because I do think that's, that's a really important thing. And we, we don't want to stigmatize those, those parents who've made an informed decision to, they've been given all the information, they reviewed that and they've decided that formula feeding is best for them or combined feeding is what works out best for them. We support the families wherever they are. And we, we don't want to make them feel like they're, you know, a less than parent because they've chosen, they've made a different choice. And I, I think we need to get away from the, you know, shaming of families who've made an, an alternative choice. Our, our role is to educate, provide guidance, and then the families make the decisions that they're going to make. And we, you know, 100% support them in that decision as well. Oh, wonderfully sad. It's appreciate. I'm sure my mom appreciates. We're really going to stop about talking about my mother's uh, <laughs> breastfeeding decisions. And I think in, here <laughs> no, no. in in one of these questions, though, and kind of broadly thinking about how to best support moms in newborn feedings, I think something that comes up that we as a team are very interested in is the health disparities in newborn nutrition and infant nutrition, whether there are structural factors that exacerbate racial or ethnic health disparities, are there, can you comment on this, help help guide us? Is there anything we can do to kind of help alleviate these disparities? So I, I think you bring up a really important point. And when we look at the um, CDC collected data via the National Immunization Survey, which is nationwide information, we find that the rates of breastfeeding for the Black population are lower than they are for the white population or the Hispanic Latinx population. And there are some contributing factors that we can identify. And I think there are also some strategies that we can implement to try to address those. And some of those are are well underway. For one thing, access to breastfeeding support services may be limited by the community in which you live. The Affordable Care Act did include a provision to say that both breastfeeding supplies, such as breast pumps, as well as breastfeeding consultation should be covered by insurance. So if you have insurance and you have access to those, that's great. If you don't happen to have insurance and you're covered by Medicaid, which does cover you know, pregnancy and also postpartum care, but that can be a limiting factor in terms of your access. So Medicaid is run by the states. There's some federal money, but it's actually run by the states. So it's up to the states to decide 
what they're going to cover as services in their state or not. So some states are covering breastfeeding services, particularly some of the managed care Medicaid plans are really following the same guidelines that the private insurers um, have to follow under the Affordable Care Act, but that's not necessarily universal. So some moms, particularly from certain demographics or certain communities, uh, may not have access to the same services based on, on income or, or where they happen to live. So, so that's an issue. And then some hospitals may not have the same level of support either. You know, more rural communities may not be able to afford lactation consultants to be available in the hospital 24-7. They may limit that to the higher risk babies or they might not have anybody at all to provide those services. So, you know, if you happen to have really great obstetricians and family physicians and pediatricians to, to provide that support, that's great. But we're typically not, you know, in the hospital at the bedside 24-7 like the nurses are who need to be trained in breastfeeding support or lactation consultants might be able to be. And then I think the other sort of structural historic issue in this country really has to do with the impact of slavery on the African-American population and the uh, pattern of wet nursing that was imposed on African-American women. And it's really created a legacy of some attitudes that breastfeeding is not necessarily seen as something that you do in certain populations. It, it may be looked down upon in certain families. So you're sort of dealing with those family aspects, those structural aspects. And then even when you look at the Hispanic population, or particularly the, the, those who have immigrated from Latin countries, in their country, they would have seen breastfeeding as certainly the way to feed your baby. But then when they get to the U.S., and we see this from immigrants from other parts of the world, they get to the U.S. and they see that we're such a formula-feeding culture, and they see it in the media, and they see it in women's magazines, and they see it in their friends, and they see formula coming from the WIC department, and it's like, well, you know, this must be the way that you feed babies in, in the U.S. So, you know, that, that's, that's been a, a hard thing to overcome. But there, there, as I mentioned, there are some strategies to address this. Which, which I think are really important. And, and one of those is an emphasis kind of in among all professionals to diversify the workforce and to include more underrepresented minorities at all levels, from physicians to physician extenders or mid-level providers to nurses, lactation consultants, making sure that we get the right people in the right places to support breastfeeding. I think the, the designation of hospitals as baby-friendly or at least implementing some of those evidence-based maternity care practices as, as more of a universal standard actually helps to kind of level the playing field in terms of what kind of support will be provided in the hospital because the staff all have to have training and they all have to do certain things that, that helps to support and get all of our families off to a good start with breastfeeding if they choose to breastfeed. I mentioned the the WIC issue, and certainly they do provide free formula, but they've also been very good at providing breastfeeding support. And they, in particular, have a peer counseling program, which, which provides some basic breastfeeding education and training to individuals from the communities where they're their population, their clientele, as they refer to them, you know, where they, they live and work and, and get their healthcare services. So people that look like them, talk like them, go to the same church that they do, are there in the WIC office to provide guidance and to be a role model. And, you know, that I, that I think does help. I, I guess the last thing I would want to mention is there are some nonprofit organizations that have done a lot of work with, again, some of the, the non-white population and particularly with the African-American women. There's an organization called Reaching Our Sisters Everywhere or ROSE, and they specifically, it's an, it's an outreach to um, the African-American population, and they've, been, they've had some really good results in terms of Again, providing that peer level support using faith based organizations and, you know, the, the local beauty shop or wherever women might be that they can have some, you know, positive role models and people that understand, you know, why this is important to kind of talk to them about it and, and, and role model. And that, that's been really helpful. But Rose is also trying to get more professional educators from, again, the underrepresented minorities, African-American population. So again, more, more of our patients will see 
docs and other providers that that look like them. And and you know, there's been some well publicized literature reporting that African American babies have better outcomes when they're cared for by African American pediatricians. And while I I am Caucasian, since we're um, not on video right now, but you know, I I think. I think that's a wake-up call to us in terms of making sure, again, that we have the right, the right providers providing the right services, and that we're aware of these, you know, racial ethnic disparities, and and are all doing our part to try to address them. It's it's one of the mission statements that we have here at the Cribsiders in order to address these issues and make sure that people are aware of them. We really appreciate um, the comments that you've made today, and uh, hopefully, people understand that this is an important avenue that we need to continue to have further research in, as well as understanding what's going on. I think we want to sort of move on a little bit to a couple more questions that we have here. In terms of supplementation of breastfeeding, do you recommend giving iron or vitamin D? Are there certain ages that we're supposed to be doing the supplementation at? I'll start with the iron question. And there are, there are some evolving ideas about that based on, on some of the literature. Traditionally, we have said between four and six months, it's important to provide a supplemental source of iron. The, the most recent review of the evidence supports that for healthy term babies who have, you know, the sort of full-term exposure to iron stores, a lot of the transfer of iron from mom occurs during the last trimester. So if they're full-term, they have, you know, adequate iron stores. And you couple that with um, delayed cord clamping. So instead of immediate cord clamping after delivery, you know, our our OB colleagues have supported delayed cord cord clamping. So there's a little more equilibration in terms of the, the amount of iron that the baby is getting from the mother in that immediate postpartum period. And then with exclusive breastfeeding, while human milk is not a great um, source of iron in terms of percent or, or weight available, the, the bioavailability is, is quite good. So in general, we feel like, again, for that term healthy population, they're probably good for about six months in terms of having adequate iron. If, if it's a premature baby, that's totally different. And they missed part of that or all of that last trimester. They do need to be started early on iron supplementation to prevent iron deficiency anemia, which obviously is important for growth and, and overall development and intellectual development. So we want to make sure that that those babies get additional iron. But for the the, the term healthy baby implementation of additional iron at about six months, and then it can be in the form of appropriate complementary solids to provide that as opposed to an iron supplement. In terms of vitamin D. Um, sorry, can I yeah. quickly ask a quick clarification? Certainly. If someone is formula fed or receiving more than half their nutrition from a formula, my understanding is that you do not need to do any type of iron supplementation. Is that correct? That is correct. Again, for the term healthy babies, they're getting adequate Fair iron enough. from the, the formula. The formula is is fortified with iron, so they're, they're getting plenty. They don't need to get extra supplements. Again, the premature population is a little different in terms of their needs. Fair enough. Sorry. Okay, great. And vitamin D. So vitamin D. Vitamin D should be supplemented in the exclusively human milk-fed infant or in infants that are getting less than one liter of um, vitamin D fortified formula, okay? So it kind of depends if they're doing partial breastfeeding, partial formula feeding, you you need to sort of um, figure that out in terms of when they hit the liter. And I always like to emphasize to my breastfeeding families that it's not that human milk is deficient in vitamin D because cow's milk doesn't contain adequate amounts of vitamin D either. It's just that the manufacturers go ahead and supplement it in the product. And in human milk, we have to provide that as an additional supplement. We as as humans are designed to actually make vitamin D by exposing our skin surface to sunlight. And as an environmental issue, and with our concern about the potential lifetime risk of skin cancer with sun exposure, we no longer recommend that, you know, babies go out and go for a stroll and get plenty of sunlight. We keep them covered. We use, you know, sunscreens, which does decrease the production of vitamin D. So, so vitamin D, because of because it's um, unsafe to get that from the sun, all babies need vitamin D. They get that from their 
fortified formula, if they're feeding formula, if they're being um, breastfed, they do need vitamin D. And the recommendation is that that start by hospital discharge. So after their newborn stay by hospital discharge, we educate the families about that. We, you know, make sure that they know to start it. We need to reinforce that when they come back for their follow-up visits in the office, verify that they are actually getting the vitamin D because it is important that they get it. And it's 400 international units per day that they, they get. So it's kind of standard dosing across the board. And this is to prevent rickets, right? That's the major... That is- Yes, that is. So rickets is the major thing we're concerned about. But we know that vitamin D is actually considered more of a hormone. So its impact is much greater than just on on the bones itself. But but yes, that's the major thing that we're concerned about in young children. What are some of the major differences between the different types of formula between uh, hydrolyzed formula and soy formula, and then also with cow's milk? So I guess I'll start out by saying that cow's milk is perfect for feeding baby cows, but not so great for feeding human babies. So in order to make a cow milk-based formula, there have to be a lot of modifications that are made in that, in that preparation. It tends to be predominantly highly saturated fat, so that saturated fat tends to be removed and replaced with polyunsaturated fat predominantly. The total protein in regular cow's milk is much too high for young babies, so we have to decrease the protein. And in some of the formulas, they modify the type of protein, so the whey to casein ratio uh, may be modified. Regular cow's milk is casein predominant. That may be a little bit harder for some babies to digest, so some of the formulas will decrease the casein component and increase the whey. Human milk is more whey predominant, so it's more like the uh, type of protein that they would be getting in human milk, although they're different proteins. Also, they have to increase the amount of carbohydrate in cow's milk to make that appropriate, so they add additional sugar. It may be lactose, or they can also use glucose or glucose polymers, depending on the brand. And then uh, cow milk itself can be antigenic to some babies, So there are some modifications that can be done of that. And one of those is what we call extensively hydrolyzed products. So they actually treat that protein or the the formula with both enzymes and heat to break down the protein into much smaller polypeptides, which are less likely to stimulate an antigenic response in the baby. So if the baby has, seems to be developing an allergy to the cow's milk protein, that's another option, although that would not be the the product that we would start with in general. And then, of course, there are some soy formulas. And and in those cases, we, instead of using a cow milk protein base, it uses a soy protein base. And there are some other modifications as well. Those typically do not contain lactose. There are certain babies that have galactosemia, particularly the classic form of galactosemia. So they can't digest lactose. So they need to get the, the glucose or glucose polymers as their primary source of carbohydrates. So, and then the other thing is the sodium's too high in, in standard cow's milk. So the sodium and, uh, and mineral content has to be decreased to make it appropriate. So there are extensive modifications in order to make an appropriate formula. And, and that's best for babies under 12 months of age. And so as far as the typical formulas, and I, I'll admit, it's, I think it's tough to not refer to them without referring to their brand names, but we're going to try. The, I feel like there's typical formulas that most babies go on. There's the ultra hydrolyzed and then soy. I also have a lot of patients or mothers who are asking me to fill out the WIC form so that they can have the sensitive formulation or the ease formulation. And I have looked into the, uh, what. What are the what are the differences? Is this all marketing? Is this all branding? How do we how do we decipher this like long grocery store of colorful formulas? There there are a lot of them available, and I would have to say that a lot of it is marketing of proprietary brands, and there may be some differences, but but probably the differences don't outweigh the potential increase in cost, whether that's 
the family purchasing this themselves or the WIC program providing it. It can be a tough sell. I've been in many a room trying to explain to the family why the standard formula is really okay for their baby and they're going, going to do fine with that. I mean, this sort of there, there are a lot of parents that perceive that their child has an intolerance to the formula. There's some issue. They're spitting up. They're gassy. Their stools are loose. And some of those are just idiosyncratic with the formula. We know that spitting up is very physiologically normal, particularly for the first six months of life. But sometimes the parents interpret that sort of normal, you know, bit of reflux as, you know, a problem and therefore means that their their child is not tolerating a formula and it needs to be changed. So my preference is that the parents allow their pediatrician to guide them in terms of making changes um, when necessary instead of allowing the marketing folks or the internet or great aunt Sally to make the decision about the best infant formula for their child. That being said, often they've consulted those other sources before they get to me. So they've already made a change and think this is so much better. I typically don't try to fight that battle in all honesty. I just say, if you think your child is doing well with, you know, what you're doing, it's, a, you know, and it's a standard formula that provides enough iron and appropriate nutrients, I, I'm typically going to kind of just go with the flow on that one. But, but you know, it, there's a lot of marketing out there behind the, the formula. So it, it, it can be a challenging situation when you're in the room with the patient. I have a quick question that, so it's anecdote, but the lesson that I learned in residency clinic where a newborn that was maybe a week or two old came in, mom was saying that the baby was constipated and had distended abdomen, had small pellet stools from, and was formula fed. And it was the social worker who actually made the diagnosis saying, mom is making the formula with like heaping large packed scoops. And I think that's why the kids constipated because the concentration's wrong. How do you explain to parents how to make the formula? So I think this is an important question, and we sometimes assume people will just read the label and they'll figure it out. And we really should talk to them as much about formula feeding as we do about breastfeeding and, you know, how to do this. And so formula comes in three different ways. There's a ready-to-feed, extremely expensive, very difficult to find. They're not going to get that from the WIC program, and I wouldn't encourage them to buy that unless they're traveling somewhere that they're not going to have a safe water supply and they're, and they're formula feeding their child. But the two most commonly used forms are a concentrate, which is mixed one-to-one -one with water. It's also a little more cumbersome because you have, you know, big containers. So again, not, not necessarily travel friendly or whatever, but, but that one's a pretty easy one. You measure the amount of formula, you add the exact same amount of water, you mix it up and you feed it. So kind of easy peasy there. The powder though is where it gets a little bit more problematic. You need to make sure that you measure that appropriately. You need to use the scoop that comes with the can not just grab some household utensil from the from the silverware drawer and think, oh, this will work. But you need to use the standard scoop. And the, the traditional formulas are two ounces of water, safe water supply, obviously, but two ounces of water. And then you add a scoop of the powder to the two ounces of water. You don't add the, the powder first and then measure up to two ounces because you're wrong already. We see two common errors, um, sometimes intentional, sometimes not intentional. Sometimes the families, if there's an economic issue, they're trying to stretch the powder. So they'll actually use too much water and dilute it inappropriately. So then the child's not getting the appropriate nutrition. They're not growing. They're going to falter on their growth curve if that happens for very long. And that's a problem. But then sometimes it's just, it's, it's a language barrier. The, the label is confusing to them or, you know, again, great aunt Sally, I'll pick on her again, you know, is, is fixing the formula because she's babysitting during the day and she didn't understand the, the instructions. So I think just making sure that, that they know how to use the powder formula appropriately. And it can also clump. So you need to really, really mix that up and get it, you know, completely dispersed. Otherwise there's sort of chunks of that. And, and if they eat those chunks, you can see those same chunks, make it all the way through into the stool. So we can get these powdery clumps and then they wonder what's wrong with the baby. So that's, a, that's another little tip for the powdered formula. 
So our next patient at Cashlack Children's Clinic is Kyla Graham. She is a four-month-old infant who was born at full term without complications, and her parents would like to discuss initiating solid foods today. How would you counsel them at this point? Are there, for example, certain things that they should look for to say, I'm ready to start eating solid foods? So the general recommendation that we give is about six months for the initiation of solids. And the, the part of the reason for that is that the formula and or for the breastfed baby, they're getting their primary source of nutrition from the, the formula or the human milk. And there's really no reason to initiate earlier introduction of solids. But what we talk to the families about in terms of when their individual baby is ready is looking for some cues in terms of being able to sit with minimal support about six months is when that typically is going to happen. We want to make sure that they have really good head and neck control. So when they're, when they have that minimal support in an upright position, they can hold their neck without someone else having to hold the, the neck for them. Part of that holding the neck is also being able to turn the head away when the spoon is coming at them and they don't want any more when they're done feeding, they can actually indicate their refusal of that. So that's kind of important. We want to make sure that they can move a bolus of pureed substance from, if it's put on the tip of their tongue, they can move it to the back of the mouth. They can swallow it. No choking involved with that. So, you know, that's another thing we would look for. I, I've heard a, a lot of pediatricians say, well, as soon as they start grabbing at the parent's plate when they're eating dinner, that shows they're ready for solids. Well, really, that just shows that they are ready to touch anything that they can get their hands on, which happens well before six months. So it doesn't necessarily mean they see that as food and now they want that food because, of course, everything will go straight to the mouth, you know, when they reach out at that age as well. So closer to six months is really um, the, the better time to start solids in terms of that developmental readiness as well as the overall kind of nutritional complement that you're providing, which we need. We talked earlier about the, the iron stores and the iron stores last about six months. But about six months is when we want to introduce a, a better source of iron to the growing infant. Do you recommend a specific type of food to introduce first, a sequence of foods, the timing between foods? That's This is something I know that's changed over the many years now. So I was just wondering what your thoughts on this were. So there is a lot of urban lore associated with this, most of it not um, substantiated by evidence. What we do know from a nutritional standpoint, though, is that babies need protein, iron and zinc, particularly high quality protein at about six months. So when you think about the food that is the best source of protein, iron and zinc, it is actually our meats, poultry, those, those foods are actually the best complementary foods in terms of overall nutrition for the child. So, so those are actually best. Now, we obviously don't give them a steak at six months. So it has to be pureed or the, you know, texture extensively modified at six months. As they get closer to 12 months, they obviously can take much more in the way of texture. But other than kind of proteins first, I, I don't really do specific order. I do recommend that families add one new thing at a time so that if there's some sort of intolerance, it's easy to identify what the new food was that might have caused that. The literature also shows that babies sometimes have to be exposed to a new taste multiple times before they actually like it. So one try of the peas doesn't mean that the child, you know, will never eat peas again. It means that you just continue to offer that um, periodically and, you know, eventually they will hopefully try it and maybe decide that they like it, maybe not. But it's, it's, there's, there's no real rhyme or reason about, you know, what comes next. I, I know some of my pediatric colleagues like to say, oh, you must give the vegetables first, because if you give them the fruits first, they're, you know, sweeter and much more likable. So therefore, they're not going to want to do the vegetables. But as I already told you, human milk, it has a slightly sweet taste anyway. So they're used to that. For our breastfed babies, they actually get a taste of the mom's diet via the breast milk. So the spices that are used for cooking are already familiar to the, the child. So when they're introduced to the family foods, it's like, oh yeah, I recognize this taste. And, and it's actually been shown that mothers that consume something while they're lactating and then um, introduce it to their baby, the baby is more likely to accept that food, which is, huh. which is kind of cool. 
I thought the first food always had to either be a banana or an avocado. That was <laughs> from anecdotal evidence. I don't know if you guys have friends, but those are the that seems to sometimes, be the sometimes just rice cereal, just so they get rice cereal. I guess, yeah, a little thicker as well. Yeah, so, See, that's, so... avocado's bougie millennial, I guess. So. And how would how do you recommend introduction of what we've traditionally considered the highly antigenic foods? So there, there was sort of a landmark study that was published um, several years ago now called the LEAP study, and there have been a couple other corollaries of that. But, but what we have found from the LEAP study is that the traditional guidance that we had been giving families for a number of years about staying away from these highly antigenic foods during pregnancy, lactation, and in infancy was actually having the opposite effect of what we intended. And it may have contributed to increased risk of allergy, particularly looking at peanut. The, the, this LEAP study particularly found that the high quality evidence for um, peanut introduction. So we now know that we do not wanna restrict the pregnant or lactating mom's diet. And for the infant themselves, particularly if there's a high, if that if that child is deemed at high risk for development of severe peanut allergy, we want to introduce peanut protein to that child by the age of six months. So some, the study showed between four and six months is when that protein should actually be introduced, as opposed to waiting a year or two, as you know we tra traditionally had said. And that actually is associated with decreased risk of developing the peanut allergy. And of course, it's small amounts. You don't put a big, you know, wad of peanut butter in the child's uh, mouth at age six months. But, but small amounts of the peanut protein actually has found to be protective. We don't have the same degree of evidence to support um, the earlier feeding of either cow milk products or of eggs. But we also know there's no reason to delay eggs. Again, that was one of the things that we said, oh, you need to wait. And there's no, there's no literature that supports delayed introduction of eggs. Cow's milk is, is a little bit different, though, if you want me to, to mention that one, because we typically don't recommend cow's milk before 12 months of age. And there are a couple reasons for that. One is it's a very poor source of iron. Remember, we talked about infant formula having additional iron added to it, but regular cow's milk does not. And in, during the infancy period, the um, requirements for iron are higher, so it doesn't meet the iron needs. And then it also can cause some microscopic loss of iron, so it can actually exacerbate the potential for iron deficiency anemia. So it's not a good thing to introduce it earlier than 12 months. Although small amounts of cheese or yogurt, a little bit of you know dairy product is okay, but we don't want the child to be drinking large amounts of cow's milk before 12 months. I think Jess and I, before the episode, we're talking that we both have had children, toddlers in our clinics with severe iron deficiency anemia due to large intake of, of cow's milk. So definitely something to be concerned about. So something for people to think about. And even after we introduce cow's milk at about age one, we still want to limit the amount because there are definitely a lot of toddlers that are walking around with bottles full of, you know, full bottles of cow's milk virtually all day long. And that's too much. So we really want to give it in a cup. The, the cow's milk, we want to um, feed that from a cup and we want to limit the amount to like no more than 18 to 24 ounces so that they're getting the, those other complementary solids and not just filling up on the cow's milk, which can increase their risk significantly for um, iron deficiency anemia. So yeah, I think we, we've got some some good, I think, kind of quick questions too. Why don't you guys want to do some, uh, some rapid fire questions? We'll just kind of go around the horn. I'll do the next one. Oh, you got it. Can I, can I give my baby water? So water is okay after six months. Uh, before six months, they get all the fluids they need from either formula or breast milk. And then after a year, water, again, from a cup is actually a good habit to develop in, in kids so that they're not drinking. One of my pet peeves is the juice. Too much juice, that's a real problem. So I think getting them used to the, the taste of water and you know them learning that that's a good way to satisfy thirst is a, is a good habit to develop early on. Nice. Next question, baby led weaning. What is it? What do, what do we think about it? As a team, what, what's, what do we tell parents? So yes, I've been hearing more about this one lately. So in theory, 
baby led weaning is it sounds good the folks that espouse that basically say that they should eat anything off the table whenever they want to do that and i i do have concerns about first of all texture <laughs> too early i mean we know that you know babies start gumming a little bit but they can't really masticate well so i worry about um, choking hazards we have to be really careful about those sorts of things and then just nu nutritional completeness in terms of you know the child at age six or eight or even 12 months may not be choosing exactly what things might be best for them to eat so i do think uh, a little more parental guidance in that process can be can be really helpful but i do support that earlier transition to the family foods with modification of texture so i i think baby lid weaning can work with some careful parental instruction and modification of that i'm not a real proponent of a lot of the baby foods that are available you know single ingredient items are Generally, you, you get the best bang for your buck in terms of nutritional adequacy of those. But when you move to the meals and foods, and there's a lot of stuff added to that. There's a lot of fillers. There's a lot of carbohydrate. They make them more to appeal to the adult palate. So the parent tastes it and said, oh, this tastes good. And really all, the, all of that extra salt and fat um, and you know carbohydrates aren't necessarily healthiest for babies. So you know, I, I think starting with the single ingredient, make it yourself is always best because you know, you know you're, if you're buying local, you're, you're cooking it that's great. You know what your baby's getting. You know, sometimes using the, the jarred food, commercially available food, you know, can be helpful or the pouches can be helpful. You know, if you're on the road, if, you know, you're not, it's not going to be a convenient place for you to, you know, fix little Susie's uh, meal to get ready for them. But for the most part, I think actually just adapting what you're cooking for the family and then paying attention to that, you know, not adding a lot of salt and sugar and extra stuff that the infant or toddler doesn't need is, is important. Okay. So to settle some disagreements between my fiance and I about our hypothetical future children, can vegetarian or vegan diets provide enough nutrition or proper nutrition for children, infants, et cetera? So I would say the answer to that is yes, particularly if it's carefully, if the diet's carefully chosen. Now, if they're a lacto-ovo vegetarian, so they include milk products, dairy products, and eggs, it's really very easy to come up with a uh, nutritionally complete plan, just like the, the rest of the family does. If it's a strict vegan diet, you do have to be a little bit more careful about making sure that there's adequate high quality protein. I really suggest the guidance of a dietitian or somebody that's skilled in um, helping to develop feeding plans. In that case, we do need to be concerned about vitamin B12 because if there are no animal products at all in the family's diet, then that child is at risk for vitamin B12 deficiency. So that's a problem. But also, again, getting back to our friends, protein, iron, and zinc. A uh, little bit harder to make sure that the, the diet is nutritionally complete. But, you know, dried beans and legumes and, and soy proteins and, and things can be used. So, yeah, yes, you can do it even with a vegan diet, but you just have to be a lot more careful about that. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you so much. All right. I think we're going to start wrapping up right now. So I'm going to ask you, what are your main take-home points for our listeners? So I, I think my take-home points are that pediatricians really can play a critical role in terms of counseling families, giving advice. And I think we do need to make sure that we incorporate nutrition and physical activity in, in all of our visits with our families, starting from starting from uh, calorie back at, you know, five-day-old and, and on. We need to find out what our families are eating, whether it's nutritionally complete. We need to monitor their growth curves and make sure that they're growing appropriately and not excessively and provide guidance about that. I always like to, first of all, I always plot the information or make sure that my EHR has done it. And I've looked at it before the patient leaves and I go over it with the family and, and tell them, you know, what it is we're looking for. And it's not just the weight. We're looking at length and head circumference, particularly in those first few years as well, to make sure that, you know, all of that is growing 
course, we continue to monitor height as they get a little bit older. But And in counseling families about nutrition, I always make it a family affair. So it's not if, if I see that one child's weight is, is their BMI is, is creeping up, I talk about changes that the family can make, not just that we, you know, develop a plan for this one child, but it really needs to be healthy lifestyle changes that the entire family is doing, both in terms of looking at the nutritional plan for the family, but also physical activity. And are, is the family getting enough uh, physical activity? And there are things that they can do together to develop those sort of lifelong healthy habits very early in childhood. And I think that's one of the cool things about being a pediatrician. Thank you. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. And before before you leave us, I just want to ask you, do you have anything you want to plug? Well, I will say I work with the, nothing proprietary, but I, I, wor- I work with the American Academy of Pediatrics developing some physician education on breastfeeding. So if you go to the website and, and look at our website, um, you can find some tools. If you didn't feel like you got adequately trained and you're a practicing doc or if you're a trainee, there are some resources there so that we can make sure that all of our physicians going through training now are learning enough about nutrition. They're learning enough about breastfeeding support and and integrating that into their practice. So if if folks want to take a look at that, that'll be great. Excellent. Awesome. We'll share that resource. Thank you so much for joining us. This was tremendous. This is wonderful. I think it's going to be a, a great episode, great resource for everyone. And we really appreciate your taking the time. My pleasure. I've enjoyed talking to you all. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the Get kids. show notes at thecribsiders.com slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list called Knowledge Food Formula Feeds to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We are committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Edward, not Ed Cordy. Uh, thanks for joining us. And for tonight, I've been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Edward Cordy. And this has been Chris that you meant you. Thank you and good night. You've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by the VCU Health Continuing Education. VCU Health is jointly accredited by the ACCME, ACPE, and ANCC to provide continuing education for the entire healthcare team. Check us out at ce.bcuhealth.org slash cribsiders for more information and to claim credit after listening to this episode.